morning, everybody. So glad you were here this morning. Thank you for joining us. I want to speak to those that are online. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us online wherever you are. This is Worldwide Communion Weekend, and we'd love for you to join us in communion wherever you are. So go look around your kitchen, look around your house, find some bread, some crackers, uh, some milk, some juice, water, even that will do. Kind of get it all ready when we get to the end of the message. We would love for you to participate in communion with us from wherever you are, because all over the world this weekend, Churches are pausing to celebrate the sacrament of communion. We want you to be a part of that. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to find them. We're so glad that you were here, and we'll get squared away. Start the Romans. That's where we're going to be in a second. I'll say something about that. But you'll notice this morning, a lot of folks are wearing green shirts. And I got a little beef with them because almost every staff person has a green shirt except me. They didn't give me a green shirt. I'm not changing now. I'm not doing that now. What's the, but, but, but the green shirt, it's about what's happening in the crossing, right? Not what's happening in here. That's exactly right. Well, we're celebrating in here, but we're really celebrating out in the crossing. Oh, we are celebrating the crossing, huh? Is that what we're doing? We're celebrating the crossing? Okay, that didn't go very far. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, but we have lots of green shirt stuff out. We we want to celebrate what God has been doing here for the past three years. And what God has been doing is rising up out of nothing, this beautiful facility that we now worship in called the center. It was a three-year journey we began uh, when you had been so generous, 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 generous. And we're coming to the end of that this at uh, in Jan- December where the commitments that many of you made. And so we're having a celebration out there, just giving God thanks. So go out there, kind of venture out. You can see it throughout the crossing, fun games for yourself uh, and the kids. And if you see someone with a green shirt on, ask them a question. They'll steer you in the right direction. And if you don't know what this Now One More thing's all about, just ask a question. I'll be happy to share that with you. Uh, thus far, we raised $5.6 million from this project on an $8 million project. That's just amazing. It's miraculous. And uh, it would just be even more miraculous by the end of the year. We reached a six-point million mark. I mean, that's kind of a prayerful thing we've had going on. So we encourage you to be in prayer with us in that way as well. So let's start in prayer. God, we're about to open up your word, and we love it. We, we just love it, God. And, um, but we, we don't love it just for knowledge. We need it for something deep in our soul, in our spirits. And we know that your, your words have power to heal Your words have power to forgive. Your words have the power to redirect our lives and get us back on the right path. So whatever any of us need this morning, God, would you please speak as we open it? In Jesus' name, amen. In a few moments, we'll get to our next passage in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 5. But here in a moment, I'm going to read a passage from Romans chapter 12. Because the passage in the Beatitudes lends itself to a conversation that we've been needing to have around here for the past seven years. And I've just been waiting, it seemed like, for the scriptures to bring up the right time. And we're going to talk about a little subject called evil, about how to overcome evil. Evil is not a word that many of us use in our everyday vocabulary. Until we hear of a politician or someone on the news trying to explain something, why it happened or why didn't it happen. And when you and I use the word evil in ordinary conversations, it sounds a little Victorian. It sounds a little melodramatic. And for you scientifically smart people, you go, why would you even use that word? Because it has no grounding in reality. 
And about the only time we kind of, some of you kind of buy into the word of evil, you go to a movie and you have this villain in the movie, some sort of comedic maybe relief or something, or maybe serious, where the villain represents evil. And you say, okay, now it kind of gives me something to wrap my head around, oh, like, like the Joker in Batman, okay? So you know that is a representation of evil. But we really struggle with understanding this little word and how it fits into our everyday lives. There was a conference held up in Aspen, Colorado by some media personalities trying to understand and answer the question, does evil exist? And they concluded that evil doesn't exist. But I just got to say, can you ever go to Aspen, Colorado and see evil? So we, we kind of struggle with this concept and, and this understanding. And yet I would suggest in the past seven years, we in our world, in the United States of America in particular, have experienced devastation, experience of evil, one after another in our society, stacking up like airplanes on a Friday night trying to land at DFW. There's just so much they all can't get in and we can't wrap our heads and understand it. I mean, the past two years alone, we had this deadly pandemic. And then we have a severe drought. And then we have these random floods just start popping up in places, even like Las Vegas. In the desert, they have a flood. And then we have these tornado outbreaks. We have these earthquakes in Mexico and in China. And then recently, Hurricane Fiona and now Hurricane Ian. And all of this, this little bit of stuff, just a bear that I mentioned, all during this time in our nation where we have been just so politically and socially divided. So much evil, so much hate that our minds can't even absorb it. I mean, how do you absorb some of this? It's almost like we as a nation are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. That our spirits and our souls and our mind have been so beaten by all this stuff that we can't understand it and wrap our heads around it. I mean, how do you absorb a gunman walking into a grocery store and 10 people in Brooklyn, New York being wiped out simply because they're grocery shopping. How do you absorb in your mind just celebrating July 4th in Highland Park, Illinois, and seven people are killed by a murderer in that situation? And we all know, how do you absorb still 19 children and two teachers? And then this past week, in Russia, in a little town that many of you know nothing about, a mass gunman goes in and 17 children are murdered. And the sad thing is we are no longer shocked when we hear about it. We almost expect to hear, open up the news, the bad news that another gunman has killed a massive number of people or our schools are being evacuated by some sort of threat. And the events like this that happen to us in our world, they are more than suffering, they are evil. And you and I have a hard time of wrapping our head around it. But if you and I cannot make sense of evil, and this little word, if we can't learn to live in a world full of evil with hope, you in your marriage, you and your children, you in our schools, we are going to have even more mental health issues popping up in our society. We've got to learn to deal with it. And we have all these questions. What is evil? Where does evil come from? Will evil win? 
How do you overcome evil? And above all else, how do I live the good life, the blessed life, the living the dream life in a world, in a political reality, in all the stuff happening in the world? How do I live a good life knowing at the snap of a finger I can get a phone call or see something news that will change my life and not only wreak havoc in my life? How do you do that? Now, unlike many of the modern thinkers in our current world, the biblical writers and Jesus had no problem wrapping their head around this concept of evil. And so here's the definition really straight from Scripture. In your notes, number one, evil is to will the bad. Love is to will the good. Love is is to intentionally will and work for the good in another person's life. Evil, very simply, it's not, it's not mysterious. It's not hard to understand. Evil is simply to want bad things to happen to another person. Love is just the opposite. God is just the opposite. The Bible says God is love. God is always working for the good, for the best in other people's life. And anytime you or I indulge evil, anytime you and I give in to evil, anytime you and I choose to want bad or harm to another person, we are in opposition to God himself. We are opposing the very one who has given us life. In the prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, which we'll spend time on. He says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Flip the script, bring it there, down here. And then it says, deliver us from what? Evil. Evil is more than some sort of uh, psychological pathology. Evil is more than a mental health issue. Evil is a problem for mental health. But evil is so much more than that. Evil is not something that happens to us. Evil is something that happens in us. Now, there is a thinker from Dane, a Danish thinker named Soren Kierkegaard, wrote a little book called The Sickness Unto Death. And he talks about how evil progresses inside a human being. And this is what he proposes that something happens to you, something in the world, you get bullied, you get sick, you get cancer, something happens in your life to you and you start ruminating on it you start thinking about it and you pour all this passion and all this energy over and over and over and over thinking about what has happened to you and when that happens something occurs in you and he calls it this sort of demonic rage in your notes number two evil can manifest itself within us in the form of demonic rage. 
Demonic rage in someone does not want to be delivered from the pain. Demonic rage almost becomes your identity. Demonic rage, just anger, just upsets about everything that's going on out there in the world. You want to hang on to it because you feel mistreated. And because you feel mistreated, it gives you power and your self-righteousness of being better than those people who are mistreating you. Against the existence of that person, whoever it is, whoever it is, you're just kind of all that. You vomit, you vomit pain, you inflict suffering upon them, you want them to hurt subconsciously sometimes by your actions it's an intent of your own will within you now that is evil now church i don't care anything you hear about on the news we will never know the full story of the person who inflicted evil upon anything you'll never know the full story you'll never know the genetic complexity You'll never know the mistreatment, the childhood, the memories, the wounds of what he said, what she said, what they experienced in their life that led them to a place in their life of inflicting painful things on you. It could be a coach. It could be a teacher. It could be a boss. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone you just randomly meet. It could be a politician. It could be someone in the world. You will never know that. But here's what I do know. I do know that evil is real. I have looked into the eyes of it and I have seen it. The eyes are the window to the soul and evil resides in the soul of humans, of the will of humans. And evil has this way of thinking it has to hide. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What's the first thing that the man and woman did? They went and they hid when they were aware of their sin. And that's what sin does. That's what evil does. It thinks it can hide and no one will ever know. And it hides within our soul. You have something happen to you. You have something, you get wounded. Or you do something, you sin. And you don't do anything about it. You hide it within you. And it wounds you. Or you feel this guilt, this shame that you never wrestle with. And moment after moment, day after day, sin after sin, hurt after hurt after hurt, unconfessed, undealt with, builds up within you. And why? No wonder you have all these fractions in marriages and families. We think that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We think that what happened over here stays over here. What happened over there stays over here. What happened in here stays here, and it never does. That's the key, what we're learning about kingdoms. The biblical understanding of kingdom, it is systems of power, but also of influence. That what happens, good or evil, never stays in one place. It always ripples out and impacts everyone else around them. And so we buy into this idea in our world, in our culture, that we can overcome evil with education. You just got to start educating kids early enough and we'll overcome evil in our world. But here's the problem with that. I'm all for education. 
I'm all for knowledge. But intelligent people, educated people choose to do evil. So the Bible is very clear. The problem is not intellect. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is the human will, the will inside of a person who wills bad or harm for another person. Jesus dealt with this head on. It's my opinion in this election cycle, which is already making me throw up. And we haven't even got to the presidential part. That in our world, the only leader worth having human followers is a leader who understands the concept of evil and how bad things can happen, who can provide hope in the midst of it and not be overcome itself and project that we can overcome. And the only person I know who's been able to do that is a man named Jesus, unrivaled who can lead in that way, who is worthy of you being his follower. The Apostle Paul, who was a follower, speaks it this way. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Underline this in your Bible if you have not yet done so. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This gets to why evil is the core problem of our society and our nation and our world. Any other force or damage or hurt only happens to you. Bullying happens to you. Sickness happens to you. Insults, shame, and guilt put upon you happens to you. Death happens to you. None of those can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of them can. There are history of followers of Jesus who laughed at insults, who laughed at shame, who laughed at people persecuting them, who laughed at death, laughed at it because they knew they were living in the presence, in the kingdom of the one that nothing could separate them from his great love. In your notes. The ultimate tragedy is for a human life to become overcome by evil. Three, suffering happens to you, evil happens in you. Suffering's what happened to you, but evil happens inside. Evil will claim your thoughts. Evil will occupy your will. Evil will twist your desires in your head. It will get inside of you. Evil will damn your soul. That's the power of evil. Two or three questions. Whose job is it to fight evil? It's the church's job. Other organizations, governments, little companies can work to eradicate poverty, can work to make transportation better, can build roads, do all these other things. They can help put clothes on people. We'll help with that as much as we can. But the church's job is to fight the battle of evil. That is the job of the church of Jesus Christ. Where is this battle fought? Where is the battle between good and evil fought? Well, it's not what you think. The battle is not all these good little church people going out there to fight the bad guys. It's not that. 
The battle is not my little political party. We're going to gather together and we're going to go fight the bad guys. That's not the battle. Where's the battle fought? It's not fought in Ukraine. It's not fought in our schools. The battle's not being fought in China, not in North Korea, not in Washington, not in Hollywood. The battle is being fought in here. That's where the battle is. Kierkegaard said in every human heart, there's a fine line that separates good and evil. In the heart, in you. So how do I fight this battle? We help overcome this battle by allowing God to help overcome the evil in our own soul. To overcome the evil in my own thoughts. My will that wills bad things, that wills, that speaks harm and negativity and shame and name-calling and demeaning other people. That in me, he heals me. And when he heals me, he can use me to overcome evil in the world. This brings us to that very powerful verse, strange words, and that's the end of the Beatitudes and the beginning of the meat of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're about to enter into. Jesus himself uh, speaks it like this. Verse 11, chapter 5, blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, blessed are you, in other words, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In your notes, the Sermon on the Mount, number four, challenges my mental map of reality. The whole Sermon on the Mount, it's what it's going to do. It's going to flip your entire understanding of reality and what you think is real and what you think is right. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Crazy, what you and I bought into. Here's an example of the mental map that many of us have, have already ag agreed to. Other people have to like me. Other people have to think well of me. Other people must boost my ego. Other people must do what I want them to do. They must think the way I think. My kids, they must go to the right school. They must behave and make great grades to reflect rightly upon their genetic excellence, which they got from me, right? right. If I'm going to have a spouse, my spouse must be attractive, my spouse must be supportive. My spouse must be able to read my mind, know my thoughts without me saying anything at all. And if they can't, there's something wrong with them. That's my mental map. My boss must give me raises. My friends must give me praises. And my neighbors, they must write me little notes of gratitude just knowing they are fortunate to live next door to me even though my dog poops on their front door every single morning. That's the reality that some of you live in. And then you run into somebody else's reality. Your will runs into somebody else's real. And boop, pain, suffering, trauma, dysfunction. Now, I'm going to give you a little definition of reality. But to help set it up, notice this little video. Boom, baby. 
Here's reality. Reality is when I run, number five, when I run, in, when what I run into is when I'm wrong. Reality is what I run into when I am wrong. Now, I want you to see this one more time. We're going to slow it down just a little bit. And I want you to see she has no clue. She's just living her life. She's going out that door, and she's about to find out, boom, the most powerful reality is unseen reality. Let me reiterate that. The most powerful reality of the world in which you live is unseen reality. You and I can't wrap our heads around that or what reality is. Many of you have been to college. You've been and got an education. There never was at your university a department of reality. They don't have a department of good and evil. And soon you and I have created this mental map of reality that is not true. It's messing with your life and your marriage. And you're infecting your kids with your false sense of reality that you can't trust anybody. Some of you, that's your reality you live in. That if somebody doesn't do exactly what I want to speak well to me, they don't like me. They hate me. If this doesn't happen in the way I want, then my life is over. I can't go on. We live in this reality that is not true. And Jesus says that when evil comes upon you, when people mistreat you and they say harmful things against you, you can be blessed in an evil happening world by living in the kingdom of heaven. You can. In your notes, number six, I can overcome evil. Whatever experience it is, when I consciously live in the reality of the kingdom of God, consciously, intensely live in his reality, not my reality. Now, I want to give you four very practical ways. Four practical ways that you can know that you're living in the reality of the kingdom of God and how God can use you in your life, how small or how big your circle is, to overcome evil in a world that is saturated with it. In a political system that many of you are bought into, that's just saturated with it. I'm trying to help us all not be a part of the crazy. Vote, get involved. Please, vote and get involved, but don't get sucked in and behave like the crazy, the evil. Don't be overcome by it. In your notes, letter A, live with a kingdom perspective. See, the problem most of us have when we talk and hear the word heaven or we talk about God, we have this picture that God is far, far away, that heaven is far, far away. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it just out loud, but just kind of think. Which do you think is further away, heaven or Dallas? That's a trick question, but I'll just let it sit there. 
The scripture is full of examples. I could read so many passages of this kind of, that how close and near is the kingdom, how near is heaven. Over here in Genesis chapter 1, we have this young lady named Hagar, and her son is in terrible situation, and she feels like God is far away. And in verse 17, it says, she, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. And said, what's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. Chapter 22, get this young man named Abraham who's about to sacrifice his own son at the top of this mountain, his only son. And he doesn't want to do it. And it says, from heaven, he heard God say, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. And God said, hey, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't touch him. And then over here in uh, Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, he wakes up from a dream. He's been wrestling with God. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. I wasn't even aware of it. He was afraid and he said how awesome is this place this is the house of God this right here is the gate of heaven in the Bible heaven is here because God is here the kingdom of God is here because God is here. And the problem most of us who are living in the kingdom struggle with this because you picture God living way out there in the universe in this big, open, vast space that's lonely. And that's why you sometimes struggle with faith and you feel lonely. To help you understand this concept, I want to show you an analogy that was shared with me years ago. That when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, they decided they wanted to find out why the brains, they thought, of their communist leaders were so awesomely great and intelligent. And why their personalities were so unbelievable. So when a great communist leader died, they would put their brain under a microscope trying to find the heart of them. And they just re research after research after research. Now tell me. Can anybody tell me, what do you think they found when they did all that research on the, all the makeup of their brain? What did they find? Nothing. They found absolutely nothing. Did you know that if you wanted to find you, you say, you know what, I want to find, I want, who am I? I want to know who am I? And you decide you're going to take your body atom by atom and tear it apart and examine each little individual atom. You know what you would find? Nothing. Nothing but a bunch of air in space. Nothing. And yet you inhabit your body. Your body is inhabited by you to express yourself and people experience you in your body. Like people experience you in your body, you can experience God in the vastness of the universe because God inhabits the universe like you inhabit your body. The Apostle Paul says over in Luke, he says, in him, he's, he's quoting a Greek poet, very interesting. He said, in him, we live, we move, and we have our being. That God is as very near as the breath that we take into our mouth. We can live in the perspective of the reality of the kingdom of God, his power and his presence right now. He is getting a proper perspective. Perspective. The right perspective will always determine your response. Let me repeat that. Having the right perspective will always determine your response. A young girl writes to her mother, Dear Mom, I'm sorry I have not written sooner. My arm is broken, my left leg too. 
I broke them when I jumped from the second floor of my dormitory when the alarm went off because of a fire on the first floor. We were lucky. An Amazon driver saw the blaze. He stopped to help out. I was in the hospital for a few days, but Paul, the Amazon driver, he came to see me every day. And because it was taking so long to get our dorm livable again, I moved in with Paul. He's been so nice, I got to admit, I'm pregnant. And Paul and I plan to get married as soon as he can get a divorce. Hey, hey, I hope things are fine at home, Mom, your loving daughter. P.S. Mom, none of the above is true, but I did get a C in Bible and I flunked chemistry. I just wanted you to receive this news in its proper perspective. Perspective is everything. Perspective allows you to step back and put everything in its proper place. Jesus does not say, because I am here, you will never have any problems in your life. He doesn't say, because you become a Christian, that your life is going to be just the way you want it, and people are all going to say nice things to you. It doesn't say if you finally find what you think is the perfect church, that everybody in it is going to be emotionally healthy just like you. We know that's true, doesn't it? I mean, we just look around here. We know the fact, at least I know. <laughs> he doesn't say that at all. What is the perspective of Jesus? If you're living in my kingdom, you're no longer living at the mercy of what anybody else says and what anybody else does and who wins or who doesn't win. The person you're trying to help in your political party. You no longer live at the mercy of cancer. You no longer live at the mercy of the behavior of your children. You are living in the presence and the power of God himself. Circumstances cannot threaten your well-being. People can slander you. People can post all evil things about you on Facebook. Your boss can be a jerk. You can get cancer. A shooter can show up in your school. That's reality. It can happen. But you do not have to be overcome because you live in the presence of the you live in the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is with you. This is a perfectly safe world for you to live in. You name the stuff. If you choose to consciously live in the presence and the power of the kingdom of God. And the one who says this is Jesus. 
and he was not naive. They killed him on a cross. And he said, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and say all kinds of false, evil things about you. How else? Let her be, don't judge. This is how you'll know when you stop judging other people. And this is so deep in any of us, and it's hard. We were on our flight back from our vacation this summer, and it was an eight-hour flight, and we just had uh, the last leg, and I had a seat kicker sitting behind me. And it was a little kid, and I don't know exactly how old he was, six, seven, eight, something like that. I know his name was Sonny because his mother said, Sonny, stop, Sonny, stop, Sonny, stop. Sonny wouldn't stop. Sonny just kept on kicking. Finally, I just turned around. I looked at the mom and went, Dad. And she said, Sonny, what do you say to the man? He said, Mr. You remember, remember Dennis the Menace? This kid, this is why he kind of looked like Dennis the Menace. He said, he said, gee, mister, you're old. And I said, yes, I am, sonny. And you will not know the joy of that experience if you keep on kicking my seat. Now, I didn't say that out loud. But I said it in my spirit. I said it in my soul. That's what I said. And the funny thing about it is I wouldn't want to judge the kick. I wanted to judge the parent. I wanted to judge the mom. It was her fault. I wanted to judge her. And she was the problem. You know what I'm talking about? In psychology world research, they call this fundamental attribution of error. It's a fascinating idea. Fundamental attribution of error. And here's the idea. When I see somebody else doing something wrong... I automatically attribute it not to they got something rough going on in their life, but to their bad character. But if I'm going to do something wrong or something kind of on the edge a little bit that's kind of breaking the rules, I don't attribute it to my bad character. I attribute it to I've really got something I'm going through in this guy. I mean, it justify what I'm doing. You know what I'm talking about? So if I'm the woman and I'm the man and it's my kid back there and that's happening, I'm just thinking how patient I'm being with my son and not blowing up and not just clouding up and raining all over him for a behavior that surely he inherited from his mother's side of the gene pool, right? And I'm just trying to be as patient as I can with him, right? Not so much. Jesus just says, get out of the judging game. That's what he says over Matthew chapter 7. He just says, stop judging other people, period. Stop it. Stop it. That's how you know you're living in the kingdom and you're not being overcome by evil. Let her see, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That when you live in the presence and the power of the kingdom of God and you're not being overcome by evil, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, hey, I'm confident. I'm at peace. I don't judge anyone. No one have, I'm not worried about what people say about me. I have, my conscience is clear. And when you have a clear conscience by living in the kingdom of God, when something happens to you, so, so many of us do, and we get afraid. We placate, we pretend it doesn't bother us, we get passive aggressive, or we don't confront them in a healthy way because we're afraid of what will happen if that, if that takes place. There was a woman who was told to sit at the back of the bus in 1955. She was a Jesus follower, Sunday school teacher, because of the color of her skin. She didn't do it. But neither did she get angry or be afraid or retaliate. They arrested her. They put her in jail. 
She got death threats. She lost her job. They said it wasn't for that, but she never once, never once was afraid. She never once retaliated. She never once tried to hurt. She never asked anybody else to do it for her. In fact, she was overheard praying for her incarcerators when she was in jail. At the age of 92, Rosa Parks, when she died, became the first woman to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. And 30,000 people stood in line to pay their respects to a woman who was forced and told she had to seat in the back of the bus. And she said no. And she was not afraid. Why? Because she was living in a different kingdom. She was living in the kingdom and the reality of Jesus. Which kingdom are you living in? And finally, here's the last thing. Don't retaliate. Because of our friend Jesus, we don't have to retaliate. We don't have to. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says back up here in that great Romans uh, uh, passage in Romans 12. He said, do not overcome evil. Don't retaliate. Don't repay evil with evil. Anybody notice what our natural defense is? You think somebody's out to hurt you, you try to hurt them back somehow. You think somebody's trying to get you, you try to get them back. And then you find out they weren't really trying to get you. They really weren't trying. Has that ever happened to anybody? You got all defensive about something. You got all wound up and because you, you thought it was about you. Then you find out it wasn't about you at all. It wasn't about you at all. It was about them. But because of that evil inside of you, or it implodes within you and you get depressed and you get sad and you implode within and self-destruct inside your spirit. You may, you may know what I'm talking about. Am I, am I the only one? And Jesus says, don't repay. Don't repay hurt for hurt. Don't repay pain for pain. Just don't do it. Blessed are you, in fact. Blessed are you, he said. Blessed are you when people persecute you, when they insult you, and they say all evil things about you. Blessed are you, and you don't pay them back. You overcome evil when you take that road. And Jesus understood this better than anyone because he was persecuted his whole life. Herod tried to kill him when he was a baby. His family had to leave their hometown because of the kid and run to Egypt. His first sermon, Luke chapter 4, the crowd he was preaching to, they started stoning him to death. They wanted to stone him and kill him. He was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a glutton. He was accused of being a half-breed. He was accused of being a Samaritan. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. The crowd laughed at him and spit at him. The Romans crucified him. And you think you got it bad. You think the world is bad. And it said, we're told in the scripture, the crowds, when he's on the cross, they're mocking him with his very own words. Hey, Jesus, hey, you said you saved those people. Now you save yourselves. And I just wonder if those same people were the people in the crowds that heard him say, blessed are you. 
when people persecute you. Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people say all false things evil about you. Blessed are you. I wonder if they were in that crowd. You see, that's what the crowd does, doesn't it? That's what Rome did. That's what we do. Somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. Somebody says something bad about me, I'm going to post it back. And in Rome, if you opposed Rome, they were going to put an end to it. And they were going to put you on the cross because they knew what happened on the cross at Calvary stayed in Calvary. But not this time. Because right now, this very second, I know the resurrected Jesus stands right here, right now. All over the world in churches, all over the world. And Jesus himself says, my body broken for you. And whenever you eat this bread, this broken bread, you remember me. And blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are broken. Blessed are you when people hurt you. Blessed are you when bad things happen to you. Blessed are you when your kids are in a dangerous situation. Blessed are you when you're struggling. Blessed are you. Blessed. Because I am with you. Remember that. I've walked this journey. And then he took the cup. This is the cup of salvation. My blood spilled upon the ground for the forgiveness of your sins. Those things that you did to others, those things you have done unto yourself, those wounds within you. And when you drink from this cup, remember, blessed are you whose souls have been damaged because of the sins of your parents. The hatred of the world in which you find yourself living. Blessed are you who yourself have spilled your sin onto other people and hurt them. Because when you come and drink from this cup, you can know my mercy and my presence and my forgiveness, even you, and my healing. So God, we thank you for this table. We thank you for the kingdom table. We thank you for this table that stands above all other tables. No other table like this table, God, where you come to stand to remind us of your cross in the empty tomb and to remind us that you embody the kingdom. In you, we see someone who was blessed even as they were cursed. Even as they were just beat down by a world of so many wrong things happening. You stood above it all, God, and you overcame it with good. You turned the cross into good. Use our lives, God, to turn this world into good. So as we come to eat this bread and juice, transform it, God, whether we're online, in our homes, in the hospital, on vacation, wherever we are, God, in this room, to minister to our souls. Blessed, 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 blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. The host will come. Take their stations. You'll be invited to come to different places within the body to come and take the bread you will eat. You will take the cup to drink. And whether or not you're here for the first time or a long time, you're welcome to come and receive. This is the Lord's table, and you're welcome. Come, come.